Well, hey, if you're just joining us uh, today, uh, you're here at a good time. Uh, We just finished up uh, our sermon series on the life of Moses, Uh, but during that series, we only got to do one sermon on the Ten Commandments, and um, we felt like that was not sufficient. So instead of uh, starting a topical series like we normally would do, we normally preach through an Old Testament book or theme, and then we'll do a topical series. We thought it's better for us to do a deeper dive on the Ten Commandments because in giving the Ten Commandments to his people, God is revealing his plan for human flourishing, right? That's what the Ten Commandments are. They're a gift. And so we thought it would be wise for us to uh, look at them in depth. Before we do that, though, we're going to look at the speech that Moses gave near the end of his life to the second generation of Israelites when he was almost 120 years old, right before they entered the promised land, when he reiterated the Ten Commandments by reminding them of the story that occurred when they first received them 40 years earlier. So before we look at Moses' speech, though, I want to ask you this question. Um, Particularly those of you who are married, uh, what do you do to celebrate your anniversary? Do you have something that's kind of like your routine, something you uh, do intentionally each year? Uh, the reason I ask this is a few weeks ago, was Holly and I's anniversary, our 29th. That's May 28th. And uh, this last week, it was our daughter Laurel's third anniversary. Um, and she had a COVID wedding. So uh, we had had to shrink her wedding down to about like 80 people. Uh, outside in Fort Mill, and we had to Facebook live stream it so that like other people who'd been invited could see it. And so what she decided to do was go back and watch the whole thing, right? On her anniversary, she watched her whole wedding again, including the reception. And while she was doing that, she was texting us, right? And this is what she said. She said, re-watching our full wedding, double exclamation point. Love y'all so much. Double exclamation point, right? Then a few minutes later, we get this. Just an update. Davis's speech made me cry as hard as it did originally. Davis is Laurel's younger brother. Uh, Incredible microphone drop kind of reception speech. All credit to him. Um, And so what she was doing on the anniversary of her wedding was she was reliving the story, right? She was thinking about uh, the, the things that shaped the vows she made on that day. Now, here's the reason I bring that up. Before we look at the Ten Commandments individually, we need to remember the context in which God originally gave them. Because the Ten Commandments will only make sense when we place them in their proper context. So what we need to do, in some sense, is look back at our wedding video. Right? We need to go back and think about What exactly was going on when God gave these commands to his people in the first place? Which is essentially what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 6, where we read this. It's printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along. It'll also be up here on the screen. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am proclaiming as you hear them today. Learn and follow them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face 
from the fire on the mountain. At that time, I was standing between you and the Lord and to report to you the word of the Lord to you because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Moses' point to the second generation of Israelites was this, hey, remember that these Ten Commandments were given to you, a particular people, in a particular context. And only when you understand the context in which they were given will you understand what the commandments actually are. So what's the context in which they were given? Well, the context in which they were given was a covenant context. God was making a covenant with them to be his people. Look at verse 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. And as I mentioned, when we looked at this during our series on Moses' life, when we were looking when it happened originally in Exodus 20, covenant is a language we don't use a lot in our culture anymore, except when we talk about people entering into the covenant of marriage. But that's a helpful way to understand what a covenant is. Because in the, what God is doing in giving his people, the Ten Commandments, works a lot like vows do in a wedding. Um, the vows don't make the love. You don't, you're not making the person love you by taking these vows. The love precedes the vows, right? The love is there before you take the vows. But the vows tell you how to reciprocate the love, how to protect the relationship, and how to enjoy one another for all the days of your life. That's what the vows are doing. And the same thing is happening here. Moses puts it this way in Deuteronomy 4, right? He's reminding the Israelites, hey, God loved you first. This is what he says, beginning in verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, that there is no other beside him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on the earth, he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words in the midst of the fire, because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. See, God's love for the people of Israel preceded their commitment to keep the Ten Commandments. In fact, it went back 450 years all the way to his relationship with Abraham and the promise that we mentioned when we baptized William earlier when God said, I'm going to be a God to you, Abraham, and your descendants after you. But if that's the case, if God's love isn't conditioned on our obedience, then why give these Ten Commandments? Well, for the same reason you take vows in a wedding. Chuck DeGroat puts it this way in his book, Leaving Egypt. He says, the whole intent of God's law is to restore people into a loving relationship with God and 
with each other, which is why during our call to worship, when we looked at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it said, how is the Ten Commandments summarized? What's the sum of the Ten Commandments? Well, that's easy. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, just as vows in a wedding reciprocate the love, protect it, and explain how to enjoy one another all the days of your life, so the Ten Commandments tell us how to reciprocate God's love, how to protect our relationship with Him, and how to enjoy Him all the days of our life. But God isn't merely marrying himself to us as individuals. He's also marrying himself to us corporately. He's, at, he's forming a people for himself, a holy nation, a royal kingdom. And so in an important way, this is a royal wedding. Look again at verse 4. The Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire on the mountain. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you to report the word of the Lord to you because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. You see, what God is explaining is that he toppled Pharaoh. He took a people for himself from inside a godless pagan culture so that he could actually form a community of people over whom he would be the king. And he could then shape them into a culture that reflected his d divine design for human beings. So in a real sense then, what the Ten Commandments are is they're our wedding gift. They're the thing that God, the lover of our souls, gives us so that we might become the people of God who are shaped by the affection of God and live according to the word of God. So in the weeks ahead, as we think about these Ten Commandments, you'll have no other gods before me. You will not make an idol for yourself. You will not take my name in vain. You'll remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, you will honor your father and mother. Um, you won't commit adultery. You won't murder. You won't lie. You won't envy. We need to um, think about it in a different way. And the way I want us to think about it is this. We want to ask ourselves this question. What would it like, be like to grow up among a group of people who actually lived this way? What would that be like? What would it be like to grow up in a community of people who all agreed, first commandment, that they were created and graciously saved by a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and quick to forgive all of those who call out to him for mercy. What would that be like to grow up among people like that? What would it be like to be in a culture where people didn't create their own versions of God to suit their own materialistic or sexual or political means and say, well, my God would never do this. My God would never do that. Or what would it be like to be in a nation where people weren't religious hypocrites, but that people's public and private lives were those of integrity? They actually were the same person publicly that they are privately. Can you imagine being in a city where every week everybody took a day off just to enjoy 
what God had given them during the week and what God had done through them during the week at their jobs. And just to delight in it and be satisfied with it, to be content. What would that be like? What would it be like to grow up in a home where families were all honorable, where marriages were all intimate, where no one hated anyone, every transaction was fair and equitable, people were generous, conversations were forthright, and nobody ever got jealous. What would you call such a place? I think you would call it heaven. I think that's what you would call that. I think you would say, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened in human history, that we get to be in a place where people treat each other like that. Hence, the second quote from Chuck DeGroat's book, Leaving Egypt, that we put on the front of your bulletin this week. DeGroat rightly observes, when Moses came down from Sinai, he brought back with him the most progressive and radical rule of life in the entire ancient Near East. God gave Israel a law that would govern just relationships between people, preserve rights for women, slaves, and strangers, envision right social relations, invite respect for aliens and strangers, and engender respect and stewardship over the land. Far from limiting freedom, it aimed to set God's newly liberated people free to flourish, which is what we're going to call this sermon series, Free to Flourish. When God first revealed himself to Abraham, he explained something really important. God was going to reveal to Abraham and through the people that were going to come to, from him his plan A for humans. He was, going to, he was going to reveal our operating instructions, how we were designed to live. This is what he said in Genesis 18. Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. You see, God's plan was to reveal certain universal truths about humans to the nations of the world through his special relationship with Abraham and the nation of Israel that would come from him. And now we can receive that blessing, right? We're among those people who can be blessed by learning to receive this. So how do we do that? Well, Paul explains how in Galatians 3. He says this, So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by doing the works of the law, or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, do you know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons? Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. So Paul's saying this is a little bit of a warning before we start looking at these commandments. He says, hey, don't, don't white-knuckle your way through this. 
Don't read these commandments and go, okay, the way I get the blessing is by trying harder, right? I've got to try really hard to keep these commandments. That's missing the whole point. The way that you get these blessings is by believing that the God who revealed himself to Abraham as a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and quick to forgive delights to give you mercy every morning, right? That's how you receive this blessing, by faith like Abraham did, by faith like the people of Israel did. The love precedes the commandments. So the love is not motivated by your obedience. It's the other way around. Your obedience flows out of your ability to receive the love. That's where it comes from. The love is the fuel for the fire of true obedience, So practically, how do we do that? Well, we've got to receive God's commands in three different ways, and we do them in this order, all right? The first is we've got to look at them as we are looking in a mirror. Then we have to look at them as though we're looking at a portrait, and finally, we have to receive them like a lover, okay? So we'll do them in that order. The first is we've got to look at God's law as a mirror, As DeGroote explained, when God first gave these Ten Commandments in 1447 B.C. to the people of Israel gathered at Mount Sinai, literally no one had ever thought about these ethics. This was a complete novelty. Before God said this, it had never occurred to anyone in the ancient Near East that women, slaves, and foreign immigrants should have human rights. That was a completely novel concept. It had never occurred to them that God's plan A for marriage was a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. They were like, what? Seriously? That's the plan? It had never occurred to them that honor killing is wrong and immoral. It had never occurred to them that debts should be regularly forgiven and that envying what other people had was bad. Before they got these Ten Commandments, they didn't even know right from wrong. And so once God revealed that to be true, what did they discover? Well, what they discovered is humans have a heart problem, right? We have a real serious moral failure going on in us every day, all the time. Um, How? Well, the Apostle Paul describes exactly how God's law did this when he looked into the mirror of the 10th commandment about envying or coveting, okay? So I know none of you have any problems coveting. I know you're completely content with your house and your clothes and your vacations and your job. You, I know that you never scroll through Instagram looking at other people's stuff and where they're going on vacation or what they're doing and think, I wish I were doing that. I know, I know you don't. But Paul, however, had a real problem with this, okay? Listen to how he explains it in Romans 7. What should I say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would have not have known what it was to covet if the law had said, do not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead, but 
Once I was alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came and sprang to life again. Sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So what Paul is explaining here is that before he read this 10th commandment about not coveting your neighbor's stuff, it never occurred to him that that was wrong. It just felt normal. It felt natural to get up every day and pull out our phones and look at everybody else's things and think, I wish I looked like that. I wish I could do that. I wish I had that. That just felt necessary and normal. And then he started taking the 10th commandment seriously. And he's like, okay, I really need to repent of my covetous ways. And what he discovered when he tried to repent of his envy and jealousy of other people is, I can't do it. I can't do it. And in fact, I am so envious of what God has given to other people um, that I realize I actually deceive myself about it. That's what happened to him. Now, you may not struggle with the 10th commandment, but you're going to struggle with one of the other 10. Right? Like, like you're going to, when we go through this, you're going to bump up against one. And for me, it's number nine, right? Number nine is a huge struggle for me. Do not bear false testimony. Why? Well, because I really like to tell stories and I like to exaggerate them, right? I kind of live a hyperbolic existence. And the reason I do is because when I grew up, I was the smallest guy in my class. And I realized pretty early on, if I'm going to survive here socially, I need to present myself as bigger than I really am. Um, and so what ends up happening is I tend to uh, add to stories because, you know, Lord of the Rings came out when I was young and I was reading it and I, I really wanted to live kind of this fairy tale epic existence instead of the sinful, self-absorbed, much in need of grace, slightly insecure truth that is my actual story. Right? That's the real, the real true me is that I'm smaller and more insecure and not really that significant. And so I, it'd be hard for me to like tell the story the way it actually is because it's kind of sad and boring, right? And so what ends up happening is I tend to, to want to exaggerate stories, right? That's, that's a nice way to say that. You know what the, the true mirror way to say that is? I like to lie. That's the truth. Right? The truth is, I like to lie. I enjoy it. I enjoy the attention that it gets me. I enjoy the power it acquires me. Uh, I enjoy the significance that I'm stealing from life by making my life more interesting than it really is. And what's the heart behind that? I don't trust the God who loves me and made me the way I am to tell you what my life's really like. That's the truth. That's the hard part. The hard part is for me to live in the truth would require me to actually believe that God enjoys me and he knows better than I do what my story should be. And so when I look in the mirror like Paul, I realize I have a problem. Now here's the trickier thing about this problem. If I'm not careful, I can actually deceive myself 
And we all have this ability. We have this ability to be self-deceptive. Because when I start telling these stories and I start making these slight exaggerations to them and I get away with it, over time, I actually start to remember the story as though it happened that way. Actually, it, it shapes my memory so that I remember the falsehood. Um, you can do the same thing, right? Like, you know, if, you, if you're drinking too much, right? You can say, oh, you know, I only had two beers. Yeah, well, that's cool. But how many ounces were those beers? Were they like, were they like 20 ounces at a Knights game? Like, how, I mean, what are we seriously talking about here, you know? And so you can con yourself into thinking, oh, it's not that big a problem, you know? Um, and when we do that, that's really damaging for us spiritually. Dallas Willard describes our problem this way in his forward to the book with the greatest title I've seen in a book in a long time, I Told Me So. It's about self-deception. He says this, self-deception is a major part of what defeats spiritual formation in Christ. In self-deception, the individual or group refuses to acknowledge factors in their life of which they are dimly conscious or even know to be the case, but are unprepared to deal with, to openly admit, and to take steps to change. As a result, those factors continue to govern their actions and shape their thoughts and emotions. This is how self-deception works. Self-deception says, oh, I'll start working on that tomorrow. I'll start working on that tomorrow. And you just keep saying that every day. When am I going to address this tendency I have to exaggerate things? Oh, uh, yeah, next week. I'll get around to that, right? That's the way it works. And so as we go through these Ten Commandments, like Paul, we're going to discover some things about ourselves that we won't like and that we're not able to change on our own. Uh, using the 12 steps, we're going to discover that there are certain things in our life that we're powerless against. For some of us, it'll be our greed. For others, it'll be our anger. For some of us, it'll be our sexual self-indulgence. For others, our envy. But whatever it is, if we're willing to let God introduce us to ourselves, then with Paul, we will be able to say, as he did in Romans 7, so I discover this law. When I want to do good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. So what, what Paul is explaining here, we now have a biological name for, and that's neuropathways. We develop these habitual sins, these things we automatically do as a way to cope with the anxiety and pain that comes from living in a broken and fallen world. Whether it's opening a refrigerator or popping a can or firing up a screen or compulsively yelling something or saying something or feeling something, it's kind of hardwired into our heads. And so how then do we rewire our brains? Well, with Paul, we have to ask this really important question. Romans 7, 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
Again, as they say in AA, when you're the problem, you can't be the solution. So who's going to rescue you from you? Which brings us to the second way we need to use the commandments. We need to use them as a portrait. A portrait who reveals to us who can save us from our body of death. And here's how we do that. We ask ourselves this question in light of God's gift to us of these Ten Commandments, and it's simply this. In human history, has there ever been a person who kept these commandments perfectly? Has there ever been a person who loved God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his strength and all of his mind? Someone who loved his neighbor as himself so much so that people looked at him and said, I think he's actually the exact representation of God's being. He looks like the way I would think God would be. Someone who desperate people found it relaxing to be around. When they were around him, they experienced Sabbath rest. They felt like they could just unwind and let him love them. Someone who invited people into relationships that they felt reflected the family of God. It feels like when I'm with him, I'm in the family of God. Someone who was so sexually safe to be around that women caught in adultery felt free to tell him their story. Someone who loved his enemies sacrificially. Someone who gave all he had to make others' lives richer. Someone who never lied. Someone who completely entrusted himself to God even when it cost him everything he had, including life itself. Well, yeah, when you describe it that way, there was this one person, Jesus of Nazareth. The apostle John put it this way in John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see what John's saying here? John's saying, Hey, listen, the commandments are describing a being who existed before he was born, the word of God. And Jesus is the word of God enfleshed, tabernacling among us. It's actually the commandments come alive. The Ten Commandments are actually describing a person who came down here and walked in our midst. And this is the person the Apostle Paul says changed his life. Romans 7, 24 through 8, 4. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but in my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. 
He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And here then is how we receive the law as lover. Right? Here's how this happens. Once you realize the mirror of the law shows me my sin, and it shows me that I am powerless to deliver myself from my own natural propensity to self-destruct by distrusting the heart of God and taking matters into my own hands. Who will save me from me? Jesus will. Jesus will do that. Okay, how? How will he do that? Well, Paul explains how in Galatians 2. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. So step one, I can't do this. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Step two, Jesus will do it for me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now, Lord Jesus, come and give what you command. Augustine put it this way. God, command what you will, but give what you command. Right? That's what I need to happen. Jesus explained that's exactly why he has come to earth so that he can do this for you. John 15, remain in me, Jesus said, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to bear fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And then verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends and you're my friends if you do what I command. So what does Jesus command us to do? Well, he commands us to pray this way, Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So essentially what you're asking Jesus to do is come and be the ruler of my soul. I need you to come into me and I need you to take charge of my life. Instead of me praying, Lord, here's my kingdom and I want you to make my kingdom come because I want my will to be done in heaven so that it'll be done on earth, you flip that whole thing on its head. And you say, okay, Lord, you're smarter than me. You love me more than I love myself. You love me more than I love you. I'm gonna remain in your love. And here's how I'm gonna remain in your love. I surrender. I unconditionally surrender to you. You are now the ruler of my heart and the keeper of my soul. I give myself to you. I entrust myself to you. How then should I live? Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. That's what I wanna know. And this is why when Christianity began, before they'd invented the term Christian, the people called Christians the way. They were people who had unconditionally surrendered to Jesus's way of living. Now, as we do that, 
that will help us as we look at each of these commandments. Because as we look at ourselves in the light of each one, we're going to see things we don't want to see. There's going to be things in these commandments we discover are sinful that we didn't really even know were sinful. And we're going to be like, whew, I do that a lot. And then we're going to notice how beautiful Jesus is and how perfectly he lives these things out. And that will then give us the faith necessary to ask him to give what he commands and to command what he will, right? To surrender to him, to say, we trust you. Once we do that, then like the psalmists, we'll be able to say this from Psalm 119. I've treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Lord, may you be blessed. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. Why? Because the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory His glory is from the one and only who is full of grace and truth because he loves us and he gave himself for us because we're his friends. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to trust you, that we would allow you to lead us in the way everlasting by delighting in your commands. We pray, Lord, that you would command what you will, but that you would give what you command. And we ask this in your name. Amen.